That brings us to chapter 27, verse 1. Then he goes back into the imagery of chaos and evil. And he says, at that time, Yahweh will punish with his destructive and great and powerful sword, the Leviathan, the fast-moving serpent, the Leviathan, the squirming serpent. He will kill the sea monster. This is an important passage because God describes destroying the chaos monster one day. Now remember, this is not Satan either. Because the serpent in the garden was not Satan. The serpent was a crafty animal that God created. A wise animal. And he was judged and condemned to crawl on his belly like an animal. And Satan's not doing that. But the serpent, because he brought chaos through his temptation into the garden, the serpent became an image of chaos. And this is why Job uses the Leviathan, the serpent, the sea creature, as an image of chaos. And the interesting thing here is we talked about this in the book of Job, but the serpent, the Leviathan, is seen as a chaos monster, not in an evil sense. Because chaos, these monsters are monsters that God created. And they're a part of God's creation. And, and there is a sense of, there is chaos in God's creation that he's left undone. And the, the idea was that humans were supposed to join God in subduing the chaos. They bring order to it. And the imagery of the Leviathan is the most ultimate chaos in creation that humans cannot subdue. These giant reptiles, these giant serpents, the kraken from um, Pirates of the Caribbean, these kind of, these were scary, scary, almost unsubduable animals for people in the ancient world. And so they became imagery of chaos. This is why even in the Egyptian mythology, you have Apophis, this giant um, serpent that's chasing down Ra every day and threatening to swallow Ra up. And we all know what happens. As the sun goes out, we're all dead. We're all dead. And so this the idea that, but Apophis wasn't evil. Apophis wasn't Satan or a demon. Apophis was just the chaos of the world. It was, it was the threat of returning to an unorderly state that was always there. It's, and then it became symbolic of that. The other thing that you faced constantly was the, the, the sea, the storm. This is why God often connects the storm to himself or the sea as a raging thing. Because even today, with all of our technology, we can't stop the hurricane, the typhoon. This is something completely uncontrollable. And the idea is that there are these chaos things. And then these become symbolic of other chaoses, like death. Or, and then, of course, this could ultimately represent the sons of God that are evil. This could represent nations that have gone evil. And so sometimes the chaos is evil, and it's destroying you and killing you in an evil, oppressive vindictive king kind of a sense and sometimes it's just chaos because it's a part of creation and so the leviathan symbolically represented that just those things that we cannot control that are out of our hands and they're threatening life and they're 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 taking it down and this is why god predicts that one day he will destroy the leviathan the serpent and what he's saying is i will completely remove chaos from creation The chaos is both just a part of creation, like death and hurricanes and cancer, 
that we don't exactly say that's someone evil attacking us and that's not Satan trying to kill us, but also the chaos that is evil and intentional. Tyrant kings, oppressing armies, and even ultimately the demonic realm. And so when we get to Revelation, God comes along and says, on that day, I will punish the serpent, the dragon, which is another word for the Leviathan. And then he immediately lets you know he's quoting Isaiah 27, verse 1. And everybody would have understood that as the forces of chaos in the world. But then in Revelation, he goes on and says, who is the devil? And at that point, he lets you know that I'm not just destroying the forces of chaos in the world that are natural, but I'm also going to destroy the chaos that is supernatural, which roots you back into Isaiah, which we've already read. And so right now, as an original Hebrew reading this, the serpent Leviathan is just an image of chaos. That thing I can't subdue, that thing I can't stop, I can't deal with in life. And, and sometimes it's just part of creation that was left unconquered and we didn't subdue it and span the Garden of Eden like we were supposed to because we decided to rebel and join create chaos. And sometimes the chaos is demonic and evil. But don't think of the Leviathan, the serpent, as Satan. Think of Satan as one of the many different types of chaos that's under the umbrella of the serpent and the Leviathan. And it umbrellas and captures every category of chaos. Emotional chaos, mental illness, okay, physical chaos in your house, okay, chaos of time and not, or, or a to-do list that you can't handle and it's breaking down, that kind of chaos. This is why the only miracle that truly caused, well, two miracles specifically, but the miracle that really, truly caused the disciples to bow down and worship Jesus was calming of the storm. Think about it. The three most chaotic things in the ancient world were darkness, the sea, and the Leviathan. They're out on a boat in the middle of a raging sea, one, in the middle of the darkness, two, and they see this ghost, a Leviathan, coming out of the sea for them. That's the most evil time, place, and thing that you could possibly get. And it's all wrapped in one. And Jesus just like jaunts over the sea and stops it. And the reason he waited to subdue it after he walked on it was to show that he could walk in the midst of the chaos and he didn't have to calm the chaos and it still didn't threaten him in any kind of a way. And then with a flick of a wrist or a word of a mouth, he's like, stop, and it obeys. And in that moment, they're like... Only God can destroy the Leviathan in the sea. And they begin down and want to worship him. The only other two things that are way beyond human control is the demons who he cast out and conquering death through resurrection. And all those three cases, only God can do that. And so that's what Jesus is doing. He is the destructive sword of Yahweh come. And he's putting down the Leviathan and the sea. And he's doing it in diseases. He's dealing in mental illness. He's dealing it in poverty. He's dealing with demonic oppression. Because all of it is chaos. All of it is the serpent. Not that the Satan is causing it all. He's just one of those things. Does that make sense? And that's what God is promising one day. 
So when you see the serpent being destroyed, think all chaos. All things that threaten the stability and order in a life. Whether it's an overwhelming schedule from your boss, the, 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 the chaos in your house, the cancer, the plagues, or the disease, or a storm, or financially, or even the demons themselves. That's the serpent that's being destroyed, and that's how they would understand it. Now, ultimately, by the time we get to the Second Testament, Jesus starts putting more and more of a demonic spin on the Leviathan because he starts making it clear there, there are way greater forces behind here and things. So verse 2, When that time comes, sing about a delightful vineyard. I, Yahweh, will protect it. Water it regularly. A guard at night and day so no one can harm it. Now, what, threatens, what, what does the chaos threaten more than anything? Your sense of life. And what is the greatest imagery of life in the ancient world? Crops, vineyards, trees. So, and that is most graphically demonstrated, even just the worms. Okay, have you ever been on an organic farm before? <laughs> before? Ever been to an organic farm? You go to an organic farm. And first of all, many of you probably know this because you were here pre-steroids, but fruit doesn't get big like strawberries, okay? You like... Red, green and red peppers are like this big. But if you see a, like a big organic farm, it is full of weeds and insects. There's a reason why we use chemicals today. Now, I'm all against chemicals and all that kind of stuff, but the reality is we would all be starving to death or we would all have to be farmers if we didn't genetically modify and use chemicals and that kind of stuff. I mean, that's a reality. And as much as I hate the chemicals and I want to do organic and that kind of stuff, I don't know if I really want to go back to farm life either. And that, I mean, I watch Little House on the Prairie. That guy works like a dog. <laughs> and I respect him. And a lot of times I feel like I work that way at home, but I do it because I want to do things, not because I have to, to survive. So. so this is what he's talking about. That won't threaten your crops anymore. I will protect them. I will take care of them. That was not meant to be like an anti or pro anything political statement or any kind of stuff. I was just trying to paint a word picture for what it was like back then. It's like we live in a day and age where you can't like say anything without. And I'm not accusing you of anything, but there's a whole world out there that God knows who's listening to my audio. And just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he said that. It's like, it's just an analogy. I have students that do this to me. I'm like, oh my gosh, please, just see the picture. I'm not political here. You all know when I'm political. I am not angry. I wish I could confront some thorns and briars, and then I would march against them for the battle. I would set them on fire. Now he begins to, I mean, notice he's personifying thorns and weeds. Unless they become my subject and made peace with me. Let them make peace with me. So notice how this analogy begins to switch to humans. We are the thorns. We are the briars. The time is coming when Jacob will take root. Israel will blossom and grow branches. And, produce will, and produce will fill the surface of the world. Has Yahweh struck down Israel like he did the oppressors? Has Israel been killed like their enemies? When you summon her for divorce, you prosecute her. 
He drives her away with a strong wind in the day of the east wind. So in that way, Jacob's sin will be forgiven. And this is how they will show they are finished sinning. They will make all the stones of the altars like crushed limestone. And the asher poles and the incense altars will no longer stand. For the fortified city is left alone. It is deserted settlement and abandoned like the desert. Calves graze there. They lie down there and they eat its branches bare. When its branches get brittle, they break. And women come to use them for kindling. For these people lack understanding. Therefore, the one who made them has no compassion on them. The one who formed them has no mercy on them. Now notice how he goes in this analogy. He begins to move to Israel being the thorns and the weeds. And God's like, how much longer must I deal with you? And I, I will attack you and destroy you. Okay, like we be gone. And I'm going to deal with you. But then he says, but a day is coming when you will be the branches. And you will be life. I will turn you from thorns and thistles, and I will turn you into branches and grapevines. And that imagery, does that sound familiar? Like John chapter 14? I am the vine and you are the branches. You're going to be the branches growing off of me, the God who brings things. I'll protect you. And then he says, just like the other nations, I attacked you. Just like the other nations, I gave you a divorce certificate. But that won't last. I will bring you back and I will remarry you. And I will take care of you. And how will you prove that you're loyal to me? Like Hosea, you will no longer go after your lovers, the idols, and the trees with other nations, but you will destroy your idols. And you will smash them and pulverize rock. And you will stand and you'll be, you'll be, and then your animals will truly be able to graze. And they'll have life. And they'll be taken care of. And when the branches get brittle, when people reject me, I will no longer allow them to stay in the nation to continue to corrupt you. I will burn them. Now, that's exactly what Jesus says. Those who bear fruit, I will prune and lift up. And those who do not bear fruit, I will cut them off and I will throw them in the fire because it's all a dead branch is useful for now. And so this is Jesus rooting himself into Isaiah. This is not the first time the disciples have heard stuff like this. But it's the first time that they've heard a human connect himself because this is God doing this. And Isaiah, God is doing it. And then Jesus comes along and says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. And this is why the disciples, the upper room, okay, the most complete imagery of the upper room is John chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17. And Jesus is like talking about like, I'm going to die. I'm the branch. All this stuff. That seems so obvious to us now. And the entire time, pay attention. The disciples keep saying, what is he talking about? What is going on? I'm so confused right now. Like, they just keep saying this over and over again. And part of the reason they're probably confused is not that they've never heard this language before, but you're not supposed to be talking like this, Jesus. This is Yahweh language. And when Yahweh talked about this, it's restoration and blessing. But you're talking about death and all this kind of stuff. And they're just so confused because they know exactly what God, like the dots have all been painted for them. And they've memorized the dots as good Jewish boys. And, and they, they, had, they thought they'd do it. And then God takes the picture that they connected with all the dots and says, no, 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 no. That's not how you do it. And he erases all their lines between the dots and redraws a new picture through the dots. And they're like, what? So they're not confused at what he's saying. They're confused how he's connected the dots because the rabbis and the Pharisees connected them in a different way. 
The language is not new. The connections are new. And that's why they're so confused. And then Yahweh goes on and says, At that time Yahweh will shake the tree, verse 12, from the Euphrates River to the stream of Egypt. And then you will be gathered by one by one, O Israelites. At that time a large trumpet will be blown, and the ones lost in the land of Assyria will come, as well as the refugees in the land of Egypt. And they will worship Yahweh in His holy mountain in Jerusalem. So he says, day, you're, you're in exile now. But I'm going to make you flourish there. And the day is going to come when I'm going to shake the tree. And all the fruit which is used is going to come off. And it's going to hit the ground. And I'm going to gather you up from the nations. And I'm going to bring you back to your land. And that's the imagery that he's painting here. When he says he'll gather those who are lost in Assyria, don't take that as like the lost tribe of Israel. There are no lost tribes. What he means is that Israel was literally lost and scattered in Assyria as in they were not united together. Not that the tribe disappeared like Hunger Games and went somewhere else, but that they are just scattered throughout the world and people don't know where their loved ones are anymore because of that idea. This is the picture he's painting. This is where Isaiah really starts bringing the spiritual element. Okay, he's hinted a little bit more. Remember, um, swords beaten into plowshares. Oh, no evil. That's a little hint. That kind of stuff. But now he's getting very obvious. When you're destroying the Leviathan, and when you're punishing the heavenly powers, it is starting to become way more obvious that we're talking about a day that there's no evil anymore. There's no evil anymore. And we did not have to wait for Revelation to get that. That has been there. That has been there way before Revelation ever came along to see that imagery. God moves back to judgment. Okay? Can't stay away from that topic for too long. Because remember, they're not listening. They're not listening. They're not paying attention. So he goes and he judges Samaria. And Samaria remembers another name for Israel. And he condemns them. And then he goes and he judges Israel or Jerusalem again, because that's coming. And then he talks about them being besieged. And then he talks about God's people being spiritually insensitive and not really paying attention to the things that God wants. And he actually portrays Israel as drunken fools who are stumbling around and slipping in their own vomit. That's like a really graphic, horrific picture. He describes Israel as, this is what you are. Now, in some ways, they literally are that because the wealthy are just getting drunk all the time. This is what God's talking about. He's not just using it as a metaphorical language that they're going around selling their own vomit. It's like, this is what the wealthy think a good time is. Because this is how twisted they've become in their sense of pleasure and partying. I don't even get why you would keep drinking after a hangover. I mean, I get addictions and all that kind of stuff, but like, you'd think you'd be cured after a hangover. Now, don't, I'm not trying to be insensitive because I still do get addiction and how it works, but... So he compares them to this kind of a thing. So once again, he condemns them for their idolatry, their social injustice. He condemns them for making treaties with other nations and that kind of stuff. Isaiah actually begins to pray. He begins to pray for relief from these these oppressions and all that kind of stuff. So in chapter 33, he actually prays to God and he prays for deliverance. He prays that this stuff will come soon. God then responds we're talking about how he would arise and consume Assyria. Now remember, at the time that Isaiah is writing, 
Assyria is still a potential threat. Assyria is still a potential threat to Judah. Israel has already been taken to exile under Shalemanzar the fifth, and they're they're gone. But Sennacherib is on the scene, and he's still threatening Judah. So Isaiah's praying for God to give them relief and to protect them, and God to save them. And and then we're going to learn later that Hezekiah is also going to pray for relief and to be saved. And so this is leading to that. So Isaiah is praying for this relief, and God raises up and says, I will give you relief. I'll give you relief. Now that brings us to a new section, and this is chapters 36 through 39. Now we're not going to go through this, because this is practically word for word of 2 Kings chapter 18 through 20. And we already covered this in the book of Kings. This is word for word of what happens. So this is basically the story of when Hezekiah becomes king. So remember, Hosea is the last king over Israel in the north. And in 722, they get sacked and taken into exile. It, Judah is left behind. After Israel is taken into exile and sacked in 722, then a little less than 20 years later, in 701, basically Sinanacherib comes back on Judah and says, I'm, I'm, you're next. And they have had an evil, wicked king, Ahaz. And we learned about Ahaz in chapter 7, Isaiah. He's the one of the Manuel, the child of Manuel, that kind of stuff. So he's got a son now who's become king, and his name is Hezekiah. And Hezekiah becomes king. And Hezekiah is the most faithful king that Israel has ever had and ever has had since then. And not only does he remove all the idols that his father established and that kind of stuff, but he does something that no other king has ever done, ever. And he removed the high places. And he began to lead Israel back, to, Judah back to God. But then Sinanacherib shows up. And according to God, Judah's going to exile for their sins. And Sinanacherib shows up on the scene and he taunts Hezekiah with basically saying, you can't stop me. No other nation has been able to stop Assyria. They all prayed to their gods and they all raised their armies, but nobody stopped us. And he's right. And you can trust in Egypt. Egypt is a splintered reed that stabs people in the back and their hand when they trust them for treaties. You can trust in your God. Your God, Yahweh, hates you because you just tore down the high places, all the places that you worship him, and he's not going to protect you. Of course, Sinatra's theology is wrong on that one. And then he says, even your own God told me to destroy you. Because remember, the prophets have been saying, the Assyrians are coming, the Assyrians are coming. And any good general attacking nations are going to read their news before he attacks them and know their current events. So he says, even your God is against me. He says, I am all that. No God can stop me. So then Hezekiah showed his great faith in God and he immediately went to God. And he prayed out to God, which coincides with Isaiah praying for God and saying, give me relief, give us relief. Don't let Assyria do this to Judah. So then Hezekiah sees this and he says, give us relief, God. Give us relief. Don't let Assyria do this to Judah. And then God sends Isaiah and Isaiah answers that prayer where God does it through Isaiah and says, Sinanachar will pack up and leave tomorrow morning. He will not attack this city. Not one arrow will come in. He will not destroy it. And he will move away. And he will never come back again. The next morning, the angel of Yahweh put to death 185,000 soldiers in Sinan Cherub's camp. And they all died in their sleep somehow. 
And when you wake up to that, that's going to freak you out. And Sennacherib leaves, and he goes back to his temple to worship his God, and his sons assassinate him by stabbing him in the back. And that brought the end to Assyria ever threatening Judah ever again. And so Isaiah recovers that story. And then there's two other stories in Kings, and that's Hezekiah who was about ready to die of an illness because he's old age. And he prays for God to heal him, and Isaiah heals him. And then there's a story of Hezekiah showing his money off to the Babylonians so they would make a treaty with him. He'd give them money, they give him an army, and they would stop Assyria. And God says, no, 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 no. All that faith, the reason I saved Judah and you didn't go into exile is because you put your faith in me and I saved you from exile. But now you're not trusting in me and the Babylonians are going to get you. And what's ironic here is the faith of Hezekiah that saved Judah from exile under the Assyrians. But it's the lack of faith of of Hezekiah that brought the Babylonians down upon them. That's the story that is covered in 2 Kings 18 through 20 that is practically word for word covered in Isaiah 63 through 39. Sorry, yeah, 36 through 39. There's only one little paragraph of detail that is added to Isaiah that Kings did not have. That ends the first half of the book. The first half of the book. This is the book that is clearly predicting the coming of the Babylonians. This section then ends with the Babylonians coming and taking Judah into exile. The first half is the prediction of the Babylonians coming and the promise of restoration. Where Isaiah goes deeper, he adds more transparencies of detail onto the restoration than the prophets before him had. So we have a more complete picture. Now we have a spiritual realm element and a total chaos being eliminated element being added to this. And then right at the end, the exile happens. And, and Israel is take, or Judah is taken to exile by the Babylonians and there's nothing left. Do you think that by the time they're exiled to Babylon, they know that the prophets were right about Assyria? Like, did, I've not really read any evidence that, that these people knew that prophecy and knew it happened. Yes and no. There's always people who are like, no, 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 no. This is full of crap. And there's always going to be people who are, yes, or trusting God. So you've got like Daniel, who's like, so Jeremiah is going to predict that the exile is only going to last 70 years. And around chapter 9, Daniel's like, hey, God, it's been 70 years now. Or we're getting like on 68 right now. Like, are we going to see the return? And he's like expecting that. And... Daniel 9, 10, 11. Not the message that he was hoping for, but that's next time. But then you've got other people who are like, this isn't going to happen. So they're in exile during the time of Jeremiah, and Nebuchadnezzar has taken the first wave of exiles. And they're like, oh, don't worry, this is temporary. I mean, Isaiah's already done. He's gone. And they're like, this is just temporary. We'll, we'll, we'll come to, back to Israel soon, or Judah, because the temple is there. And nothing bad can happen to Jerusalem. And God will bring us back. This, you're like, you're already in exile. And the prophets predicted this. Why do you think like it's just temporary? And then when it does all happen, there's a lot of them who still refuse to believe that all oh, God's abandoned us. 
God made, took us here and he didn't honor his promises. Yeah, he, did. he told this was going to happen. He told you that you'd be protected. He told you he was going to bring you back. And so they still don't believe it. And then by the time they get to the exile being freed, most of the Jews are like, well, I don't really want to go home now. I've made a good life here. So it's like no matter what God says, most of them were not really believing him. Most of them, I mean, when they're in exile and it's fulfilled, they're like, nope, we're going to go back. This exile is temporary. Then when God's like, you're going to stay here and you're not going to go back, they're like, nope, we're going to go back. Oh, I'm going to bring you back. Nope, no, you're not going to bring you back. You're going to abandon us. Oh, I'm bringing you back now. Well, no, I kind of like my life here. The most of them just weren't. But this is why God says over and over again, you are stubborn, hard-hearted, stiff-necked people. And God's like, I, I reward you and bless you, and you don't come to me. I punish you, and you don't, you don't come to me. I'm right about my prophecies. You don't come to me. This is why when we get deep, deeper, God's like, I've got to heal you. I've got to fix you because you're broken. You're broken. The second half of the book, chapters 40 through 66, are going to then cover. Isaiah is going to look into the future and write as if he is in exile in Babylon, looking forward to the day that he's going to return and looking forward to the promises of God restoring them. This final section is going to focus mostly on God being faithful to his people, restoring to them a land, and reestablishing that new faithful Jerusalem. 